Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as, are we going to get this all in one episode? I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we continue with the second part of our interview with Eden Invitation's Anna Carter. If you want to check out the first part of our interview, you can find that at the beginning of episode 70. So, moving on to issues with the broader culture. When someone first starts getting involved with Eden Invitation events or online, what are some maybe common mistaken assumptions that they've encountered in various communities, whether those communities were friendly or hostile to LGBT causes? A lot of it kind of depends on where you're coming from. We do have some Christians of other denominations who are involved in Eden Invitation. And so within the Catholic space, we have a much more robust anthropology that's rooted in philosophy and tradition. And so some of those people might have come in just knowing a few like stray Bible verses, you know, like mm -hmm. Sodom and Gomorrah or some stray verses from Paul and, and have really appreciated the more robust background of like, actually, no, this is why we say these things, right? Yeah. Uh, this is why, you know, how it follows philosophically. But I think even among Catholics, there's a lot of misconceptions about what the church teaches exactly. I think one of the main ones that's finally gaining some traction is even just the morality of desire. I know for me, I mean, I had a theology degree and somehow I didn't connect the dots that initial experiences of desire or attraction, initial experiences of the passions weren't in themselves sinful. We just talked about this. Uh, we're going through this book, Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love. And we talked about the, the structure of desire and consent to that. So yeah, go on. Exactly. And I, I hadn't made that connection, right? And I think so often we, we catechize based on the three paragraphs in the catechism about homosexuality, when in reality, those three paragraphs and what they mean for my life are rooted in like 70 other passages in the catechism <laughs> that are all throughout. And you kind of have to like piece it together. And so that was a huge misconception for me that like blew my mind when I first heard it because I had, and it really freed me from, a lot of the shame that I'd been experiencing, right? Thinking that as soon as a thought crossed my mind, then I was screwed, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and so uh, that was definitely a misconception that I had to move past. And I know people in our community do. I think sometimes there's also misconceptions about masculinity and femininity, right? Like what do we even mean when we say those things and what... Um, what are the traits that go with them, right? I think as Catholics, we love talking about that stuff, but what does that even look like? And if I've been a gentle man my whole life, am I not masculine enough, right? So I think there's some of those kind of mistaken assumptions there. I think people that are more rooted in culture, right? That maybe weren't as formed in, in the Catholic faith, but I think there can also just be some misconceptions about anticipating judgment, you know, kind of bracing yourself, for that based on past experience right sometimes we'll get emails that you can feel are a bit antagonistic and i think we've done this work enough to know that antagonism is usually masking pain it doesn't just happen in a vacuum and so you know we always offer a call anybody who reaches out to us we say hey let's have a conversation and I think that catches some people off guard right they came in wanting these intense questions or you see the way questions are worded and you're like oh I think you're just kind of trying to trap me in this wording that you're using. 
Yeah. Let's have a conversation. Like, I want to hear your story. Like we can get to those questions, but who are you? Like, let's get to know each other. And so I think that kind of person first approach catches people, some people off guard. Um, engaging with people like not as flags on a comment section who are trying to push in opposite directions, but as people who hold some of those thoughts and experiences, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I have a friend of a friend who identifies as trans and without me even bringing anything up within probably 15 minutes of meeting him, he was talking about his, his father, who I think was like a fundamentalist preacher or something like that, and how that had like really colored his experience. And so to, to him, anything that wasn't total acceptance of where he was currently at was kind of a reminder of the lack of acceptance that he had experienced. And it was really hard to see this person kind of like trying to patch up his own wounds, but totally kind of on his own. Well, and I think there are a lot of anecdotal stories like what yeah. you shared, but even some of that's backed up in statistics, right? About the mm -hmm. higher rates of bullying or depression or suicide attempts among LGBTQ youth. Right. That there are, um, you know, depending on your setting the peer group you find yourselves in the region of the country that you're in you're going to have different experiences the people around you're going to make different assumptions you know you're going to get ha yeah like these things are going to affect your story and they're going to affect the way that you relate to your sexuality and your embodiment the way you relate to religion in the future like in your story or religious people and that's why we think it's so important, again, just to hear those stories, to get to know people, right? Because that that informs people's tone, right? Yeah. That informs militancy in some situations. It just tells you so much about where people are coming from. And then that, I think, helps us to say, ah, now that I know that, all right, I, I, I can tweak how I'm approaching this, or I'm going to be a little more gradual in this area, or I'm going to be more sensitive in that area, um, and just, just helps us love people better, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. I think you might have already answered my, my next question about some ways, like what are some ways to keep a clear head and avoid getting swept up by, by either side's rhetoric? I think it really is getting to know people's stories. And yeah. I think it's okay if you're finding yourself in a conversation, even just to say and to, to draw a simple boundary and just say like, hey, you know what? It's not that I don't want to talk about this stuff with you. I do. Like, I'd love to engage and talk about politics in this way or culture in this way. But I just am realizing, like, I don't know that much about your experience. And whatever it is that you don't know, it might be that you don't know how long this has been part of their story. You don't know how they've interacted with faithful people in the past. Like you don't know what, what, what have you, right? You don't know what's been hard for them in this. You don't know what's felt freeing in this. And to be able to say like, Hey, can we actually, again, like I, I'm not trying to like sideline this conversation or, or not talk about these concerns or not answer these questions, but I just want to get to know you a little bit more before we like kind of get off in the weeds on all these ideas. And I'd love for you to get to know me a little bit more and try that, you know, <laughs> like say that you want to do that. And maybe the person will say, no, I'd rather us just argue, you know, <laughs> and then, well, maybe you don't want to have that conversation anyway, but you might be surprised if someone's like, oh, okay. Yeah. I guess we, you know, it, it has a way of diffusing what could become tense. 
Yeah. And then you can have those other conversations accordingly, right? Maybe this person is getting all riled up about this particular new bill or all riled up about this thing that came out of the Vatican because of something really particular in their life. And because here's the thing, right? You could have all the right answers, right? I, I just think of Jesus. You think of the example of Christ. And he lived in a time when it, it was a very religious-based society, right? And people knew the right answers so often. But what does Jesus do? Like Jesus is so much more concerned with sitting with the woman at the well, with eating with the tax collectors and sinners, right? With getting to know people's hearts because you can know all the right answers and you can explain all of the right answers but if there is a, a pain in my heart, right? If there is, is a disconnect in my relational experiences, I'm just going to rationalize away whatever you say. And, and maybe there's a truth there that'll stick and it'll come back to me later. And of course, like that, that's all valid and that's good stuff, right? But I think so much of this really does come through the lens, the channel, the way of, of relationship. And then if you're in a relationship with a person, you can get a better sense of, what they need, right? Maybe the person in your life who is wrestling with this stuff doesn't necessarily need like an explanation of anthropology. Yeah. Maybe they don't believe that God is real. So your entire argument about <laughs> God has created with intentionality doesn't matter because they're an atheist. Yeah. And so good luck with your, you know, cocktail conversation, but I don't know how far that one's going to go unless <laughs> you're looking at who God is, right? So you have to know their story. Anyway, I'm kind of repeating myself. No, right no, no. I, you know no, I, their story and then you know what they need next. Yeah. And it might not be what you thought. Right. Yeah. So in that case, you would have to just say, okay, well, let's talk about that instead. You know, you're an atheist. Great. You have questions. Questions are awesome. Let's, let's talk about those questions. I think that in the moment, that would mean that you sort of can't talk about the things that the particular topics that we're talking about, you'd have to go to even broader theological issues or even philosophical issues. Does God exist? Right. And then that would be that would be kind of a prior thing, which I wish we could in a broader setting. I wish we could do with some of the more vocal people, you know, in the culture. But, uh, you know, to your point, that's not really relating on an individual basis. That's more media like. And that's, media yeah. Media and media. I don't mean to anyway imply that some of those those things in ap apologetics or responses on media aren't important, right? I mean, we have a website for Eden Invitation. I, you know, we write articles that strangers will read, um, but it's a, it's a both and, right? Yeah. We need to have, truths need to be incarnate. Yeah. If we know anything as Catholics, that's, that's something real that we know, right? That, that truth needs to be incarnate, word becomes flesh. That makes sense. So often when we talk about these sort of things in a church context, it seems very easy to veer to one extreme or the other. It's tough to maintain both here because the way that the field has been laid out, the way that people enter into these discussions or the, the kind of paradigm they use when they enter into these discussions is they think that you have to choose between truth and personal relationships or between truth and love. The way that the cultural associations are set up, if you are loving to a person who identifies as trans or who is in a same-sex relationship, then the things we're saying about them are not true, right? The things we're saying about the nature of human relationship um, or the things we're saying about the meaning of the body and the soul, those things are not true. So you have to choose between one and the other. And if you propose those truths in this context, then you cannot possibly be loving 
So it feels like from my perspective, you, you're forced to make that choice, which is an illusion, right? That we don't have to make that choice. We can have both. But it just seems like in this context, very few people are willing to allow for that possibility. Well, I think a lot of it comes down to really to the virtue of prudence, mm. right? The right thing at the right time. I, I find it really interesting that, right? So obviously within the Catholic Church, right, we're, we would say that, yeah, to, to act on same-sex attraction, to be engaged in homosexual acts is sinful. Transitioning and, and what transitioning, I think, kind of nests under a few different other teachings. Right, um, yeah, there's different. There's not like a CCC this, here's transitioning, right? It nests right. under other teachings. Um, right. But I think we could say that there are ways in which some of those behaviors would be considered sinful as well, right? Right. But there's a lot of behaviors we consider sinful that I don't feel the need to bring up all the time. Think about it, right? Think about our other relationships, right? Like we, the reality is we're all, I mean, if we're trying to be good Catholics, we're going to confession pretty regularly. But what? I think there's this reality of as we move through life with people, we are constantly living in the truth and love tension on so many other topics, right? How, how are families relating to one another? How am I relating to created goods in temperance? Like, I haven't seen a blog from Catholics speaking out against Prime Day as compulsive for those of us that struggle with compulsive consumerism, yeah. right? But that's that can be sinful, you know? And so I, I think when it comes to the moral life, it's so important. Maybe we need more calling out. Maybe we need more truth when it comes <laughs> to our Amazon purchases, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, I think in all of these areas of life, we kind of do it in other areas for better or for worse. And, and so I don't think it's a, to, to your point, I don't think it's a totally foreign concept to hold yeah. love and truth and tension, but it, we really need the virtue of prudence to do that well. To your point about lots of very commonly found sins that we don't call out all the time, I think of lying as sort of that kind of thing. So the, the line is sometimes brought up, such and such majority of American Catholics are in favor of whatever practice that the church technically says is sinful. Like, I think, you know, the majority of Catholics are pro-choice, or the majority of Catholics believe in same-sex marriage or something like that. Well, the majority of Catholics also lie. That doesn't make lying okay just because the majority of Catholics do it. You know, it doesn't mean the church should change its teaching on lying. Um, so I try to think of lying as sort of a... Sort Which of a, is also disordered. Fun fact. If yeah. you're looking for things that are intrinsically disordered in the catechism, lying is actually one of them. It right. says it. Yeah, right. Exactly. So like the, the reason I go to lying is because nobody nobody is like personally invested in lying. Nobody identifies as a liar, but it's still very, very common. The majority of people still do it. And so with respect to, say, something like lying, where it's widely practiced but seldom criticized in official communication what would it be like if we did right would we just alienate everybody who's told a lie in the last week <laughs> which would be the majority of people maybe how would we do it in that in that case Does, is, is that making sense like i mean the, i think we still look at jesus right i mean the yeah. things that he says in the sermon on the mount i think yeah. are a great example where he's just not mincing words he's just going straight to the heart of it mm -hmm. and is like hey half the stuff you think is okay is so not <laughs> and i'm going to say it but then i'm also still gonna try to come over to your house and hang out with you even though you're a super public center so yeah. how <laughs> like 
talk about the both and you know i i wish we yeah. just had a video recording like how do you actually look at them jesus like what did your eyes say like how did you do it yeah Instead, yeah. we just have like a 2000 year old book <laughs> that isn't written you know like today's novel <laughs> right not like first person limited perspective where <laughs> we get inside his head because at some point he had to you know transition from Sermon on the Mount or be perfect as your father is perfect to, to something like, okay, I'm going to go dine at this tax collector's house and they're going to enjoy having me and not feel like I'm negating their existence the whole time. Like he, he had to be able to manage both in the same day somehow, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I would like to see how he, how he went about that too. That's not necessarily the purpose of the gospel accounts. So like, it's not necessarily like, something that's going to come out or is going to be like really obvious to the reader. I think that's an ongoing challenge that people have today, at least with hot button issues. I don't know. I'm just trying to think of those pivots from being critical of somebody's beliefs or actions while still, I feel like humor plays a part in that. If you're willing to be self-deprecating and realize that, look, I'm not any better than this. I don't take myself more seriously than you. That makes it easier, I think. I think of the the Fulton Sheen thing where he had some person come into come into the church he was preaching at, like in the middle of mass, and the person was just like maybe not mentally stable, but was screaming like y'all are a bunch of hypocrites. And Fulton Sheen said, "There's room for one more." That kind of style seems like it's the right direction. And I think to a, a a healthy sense. Because I think what you're getting with some of that humor is the humility yeah. that's underlying it, right? And I yeah. think another area of, yeah, so it could be that humility of acknowledging your own faults. I think another area of humility, too, is recognizing what is and isn't our job as Christians, right? Like, it isn't my job to, like, single-handedly root out a vice in somebody I love. Are you sure? Because if <laughs> you were trying to do that with something else, like if it was like, I'm going to take it upon myself to make sure that this friend or this family member is no longer lying, you would probably think I was manipulative and somewhat codependent, right? Yeah. And I think sometimes as well, like when it comes to these topics, like I think it's important that our friends and family members know where we stand and know what we believe. But then after that, there's not a whole lot we can do besides just keep showing up in love and allow there to be space for a conversation at the autonomous decision of the other person's free will. Yeah. Because I think what ends up happening is if we try to force the issue too often, we run the risk of talking out of both sides of our mouth. Right. Because on the one hand, we want to say sexual desire or this disconnect with your bio like biological sex isn't your deepest identity but it's gonna be the thing I nag you about every time I see you. Oh yeah, that's nuts. Yeah, we can't be doing you that. You know, there's <laughs> like, wait a minute. Um, I think we're gonna be the ones sending some mixed messages there. Again, that's where I think so much of this just comes back to humility, prudence, prayerful discernment about what God is calling you to do. Maybe you are the person to speak a ton of truth into their lives. Maybe there's actually somebody else. Maybe you're just tilling the soil for somebody else, right? Like what is God asking of you? And that requires prayer and surrender to the Holy Spirit, which is scary because yeah. I think we all like control a little bit better. You know, that that example with the my, you know, friend of a friend, I was not the person to start a conversation about that. 
uh, you know, unless explicit, unless they explicitly asked me to, I wasn't even going to be probably tilling the soil. I was just there to be a good dinner friend. And that was it. And maybe that's what that person needed, right? Yeah. Based on how you described they've experienced religion before, maybe they never encountered a devoutly religious person, just be a dinner friend. Yeah. And that that choice of yours to just be is actually what's going to open them up in another conversation to somebody else. It was like, oh, well, that other religious person wasn't so bad. Maybe you're yeah. okay. Timing is really important with this stuff. Just because it's the right thing to do doesn't mean it's the right thing to do at this moment in this setting. Maybe we can wrap up. How would you like an invitation to impact those who don't have a personal experience with same-sex attraction or gender discordance? A few things. I think one, I think feeling more peaceful and trusting of the Lord. I see a lot of fear of getting something wrong, fear of committing a sin of omission by not saying the thing, right? Like we were just talking about. Yeah. The Lord doesn't want that for any of us. And so I think to grow in trust in Him and in His timing, to grow in confidence. Yeah, like however God is calling you to love this particular person at this particular time. And I think also as well, just to continue to be supportive of your brothers and sisters too, that, that, that are in the church, that are striving, right? To see us, to know that we're here, uh, to know um, that we want to be community together. And yeah, to, to have that be something that's maybe a little bit more normalized, right? Like it's okay to talk about this. Like it isn't the scariest thing in the world to tell somebody this. Like if we could like kind of break some of that cycle in the church, that this yeah. stops being one of the scariest things to say, I personally think more people would still be Catholic, you know? <laughs> right. Because they would be telling people sooner. You'd be getting, being in friendship and support in this area of your life sooner. And, and also just, just growing in that spirit of, yeah, just welcome, hospitality, support, whatever that looks like. And, and, and looking for ways to just keep loving each other. And if you want to hear more uh, from Anna, she was previously featured in episodes 21 and 24, uh, which we'll have in the show notes, along with links to Eden Invitation, their main site, and also the Inheritance series that they just had in June. Anna, thank you for joining us. Good to be here. Okay, we are back to talk about when Harry met Sally. Kara, are we going to fit all this in one episode? I sure hope so. No guarantee so. <laughs> There's just so much good stuff. There's a ton of good stuff. There's also quite a bit of how they relate to each other that we would not endorse, but is also not necessarily supposed to be endorsed by the viewer. So we'll be careful to talk about that as well without endorsing it, because this movie is rated R, and there is plenty of adult content, mostly in what they talk about and not so much what is actually shown on screen. But we are talking about When Harry Met Sally from 1989, which was the first great modern rom-com and has been tremendously influential on movies and also in how people in real life talk about relationships. Whether or not everything in the movie is reflecting the truth about relationships is another matter, but it definitely has impacted how people think. Uh, Kara, would you say this is true and how you've seen people talk about relationships? Well, case in point, I literally had the opening soliloquy conversation with some guy friends before I ever saw this movie. And then I saw the movie and I was like, Nothing changes. We're always the same. 
I had the same sort of feeling, too, that we like to think that we are in a new era of relationships between men and women. But this was happening not just in 1989, but in at least the decade leading up to 1989, when the writer, Nora Ephron, who's a fantastic writer, was accumulating the experience that became this movie. It's been this way for a while. Well, it's also interesting kind of layering this on top of the fact that we just finished the book Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love, Mm -hmm. which is commenting on JP2's book from, what, the 60s? Yeah. So even that feels extremely relevant. You know, the human heart is not being remade. Our boy JC is still relevant 2,000 (laughs) years later. It's all good. Woman, you are right in saying you do not have a husband. You have a whole Carrie Fisher Rolodex of husbands. And the one... (laughs) The one you are with now is not your husband. We watched this movie recently and we're going to we're going to talk about it with obviously spoilers for the whole movie and maybe for the central question of whether men and women can be friends because that is the central question of this movie. Can men and women be friends? Now, this movie the way it's structured, Harry and Sally played by Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan meet in 1977 when they their characters have both graduated college and are driving from Chicago to New York. And then they meet up five years later at an airport. And then they meet up five years after that in 1987 in New York. And that's when the bulk of the movie takes place. At the beginning of all this, in 1977, when they're dumb college kids, Harry poses the thesis. He believes that men and women can't be friends because the sex always gets in the way. Kara, would you say that's a fair uh, encapsulation? I think for our purposes, we can reword that into the attraction or the potential for a relationship always gets in the way. Yeah, I think that's Obviously, we need to make the, you know, sort of Catholic caveat of like, we are not condoning any of their sexual practices in this movie, uh, you know, follow church teaching. But I think the movie actually proves the church's point more often than not about why it's all a terrible idea. Right, because Harry's promiscuous ways are a source of his misery or maybe a symptom of his misery. It's, you know, maybe a bit of both. It's a little unclear. Yeah, it might be a vicious cycle. Uh, he has some emotional problems that he copes with by sleeping around and those cause subsequent problems. Go figure. Shocking. We're definitely not endorsing the way they necessarily talk about sex, but they're also not supposed to be infallible. They're supposed to be regular human beings who are trying to figure it out and not didactically imparting lessons on how to live, especially because they disagree with each other all the time. That's 90% of this movie (laughs) is people disagreeing in witty and entertaining ways. That's why it's wonderful. I mean, it's like Seinfeld before Seinfeld. I also would like to give a shout out at some point to all of the great New York City insider references. Happy to point them out as we go along, but... Please do. I did love it. Yeah, you you have more experience with New York than I do. As with many, I feel like Nora Ephron does this in a few of her movies. You've Got Mail has several of them as well, also set on the Upper West Side. Mm. But if you notice at one point Carrie Fisher's character, is it Marie? Yeah. She's like scooping out coffee from a Zabar's bag. And Zabar's is this iconic, has been around for 100 plus years, Jewish, I won't call it a deli. It's like a- Is it a bodega? It's a, it's a grocery store. I mean, Zabar's is iconic. Everybody knows the orange Zabar's oh, sign. Okay. I used to live very close by. It's great. Wonderful locks if you're into that. All right, here we go. I'll, I'll map it all out for you. <laughs> Should we just lead off? I mean, yeah. you've already said, can men and women be friends? Okay, we are going to solve this now so that future Harrys and Sallys can just skip to dating, I guess, or or not date at all and remain friends. It certainly seems to be what Harry thinks. Although I guess I'm, I, I do want to clarify, does Sally ever actually state her position on whether or not she thinks men and women can be friends? 
I don't think so. I don't think she ever commits to saying, yes, Harry, men and women can be friends. I think in large part, she is contrarian and maybe rightly so just generally towards him early on. Uh, and so mm -hmm. maybe she's inclined to disagree just because she doesn't like him as a person early on. Uh, you know, for good reason, he's spitting grape seeds in the car. He's a truly disgusting human being yeah, that throughout was, like most of this movie. That was brutal. But no, I don't think she ever she ever stakes a position on that one. She just sort of is more skeptical because he seems to put it forth that men are only friends with women that they are somehow attracted to, which I have heard both agreed with by male friends and disagreed with. So I won't state the veracity there, but I do think that Harry is onto something about the fact that there being some kind of attraction on either side makes it very difficult to have friendship in the sense of we're good friends and there's no muddying of the waters. Maybe we should talk about what friendship is or what friendship should be. <laughs> because I think that that also gets a little, like, what does it mean to be friends? This is why we are so up in the air about how long this When Harry Met Sally audio is going to go. <laughs> this could cover three episodes, folks. So we were talking before the recording. Every time we mention a different part of this movie, it opened up a whole like podcast segments worth of material. So many existential questions. <laughs> I personally believe that men and women can be friends. Now, I temperamentally am not very sanguine. And so it is very easy for me to put the question of attraction aside with 99.9% .9 of people that I run into on a daily basis. So... Mm -hmm. I don't really see an issue, and personally, my friend groups have been comprised of more than 50% women. I think they're more rational and ask more interesting questions about the world and are interested in more of the things I'm interested in. Well, so, so this is why I ask, like, what do you mean by friendship? Because I guess I kind of think about friendship in a few different buckets, and they're all terms that I would say are friends, but they have very different emotional character to them. It's so like one would be my very close friends who I talk to about deep things, you know, the meaning of life kind of questions. And in the middle, there's kind of people who you're good friends with, but it's maybe a little bit more surface level or all of the conversations you're having are in a group. I think about my book club. We have very deep conversations about like the meaning of life as it comes up in the books that we choose to read. But it's in this almost academic setting. Yeah. So you're not necessarily creating one-on-one -on -one deep sort of emotional connections via those types of conversations. Yeah. And then there's like very superficial coworker. You know, I mean, some people have deeper conversations with their coworkers, but more acquaintance kinds of friends, which I think that, that that group is clearly not a problem. The middle group is also preferably a mixed gender. But I think the first group where you're really good friends, things are much more complicated when that level of friendship is with someone of the opposite sex. Either because it, for a lot of women, emotional closeness leads to physical attraction mm. and then like the relationship is out of balance if the guy is not also attracted. Or it can be problematic if you're in a relationship with somebody else and you're also being emotionally intimate with somebody of the opposite sex about things that are important. That's a good point. I think this movie might be, I didn't realize it until you were talking about different sort of levels of friendship, which is 
kind of apart from the technical delineation of different kinds of friends that we talked about in Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love, here, I think they are using friend in a specific way that does not mean the five people I go see movies with in a group of six people. It's specifically, they call each other on the phone at 12.30 a.m. and watch Casablanca. That's the category one. Yeah. There's not that many people who you would be like, I'm going to call you at two in the morning right. to hang out because most of your friends would be like, what are you doing calling me at two in the morning? I'm going to bed. One-on-one. And he even says in the batting cage scene, Billy Crystal says to his male friend, Jess, played by Bruno Kirby, who I might just refer to as mustache friend. I know him as Bruno Kirby because he's he's in Godfather Part 2, but here he's like mustache friend. And he even says to mustache friend, I talk to her about things I don't even talk to you about. So yeah, there, there's a level of significance to the way they use the, the word friend here in this movie. Yeah. So it's not all the other people play in Pictionary. I would consider those people friends if we did it like three or four times, but that's less formal than the way they seem to be using friend here. Yeah, I would agree. So in this context, when when they're asking, can men and women be friends? They mean, can men and women be the best friend I have in life? I do think that's kind of what they're getting at. And I mean, I guess I tend to side with Harry on this one personally, because I I just feel like it's really, it's almost impossible. I know some guys disagree with me, but I think that they're perhaps lying. (laughs) You know, if, if you're having that level of emotional intimacy and availability to a person, whether or not you want to admit that it's more than friendship, it is more than friendship. Yeah. And... It's like a level of significance in the other person's life that it's completely unsustainable if you're in a relationship with someone else, mm. right? Like as as well it should be. Like every therapist I've ever spoken to on this topic says that one of the biggest threats to marriages is having a very close friend of the opposite sex with whom, you know, you share things emotionally that you either don't share with your spouse or you're sharing things about your marriage with this other person. Yeah. Because it injects the level of intimacy you should be having with your spouse. And I guess it's a, to me, it's like they're sort of saying, can you have a spousal level of intimacy with somebody who's not your spouse? Now, I want to bring up one counterpoint to that, which is Harry does say, I've only ever been friends with men. Meaning this is a pre-existing social category for him. Mm. I don't know. I, maybe maybe the movie's not being totally consistent in how it uses friends. Or maybe mm. I'm not fully understanding what they mean. I will also give Harry that I think he's more of a horn dog than you are. So <laughs> Right, yeah. Uh, Harry is a much busier social calendar. <laughs> but So, okay. So, Harry, the one male friendship that we see him have is pretty healthy, it seems like, with the mustache guy. You meet the friend at... A sporting event, but they're not limited to sports. They're talking about real things while at a sporting event. Yeah, well, yeah, they're pretty much not at all talking about sports. They're just talking about Harry's divorce. And his friend is really listening to what Harry's saying and feeling it with him almost. Very sympathetic and very supportive. It's not a typical superficial bro friendship where they just get together and watch the Giants game. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. My my difficulty with this question does hinge on what they mean by friend, I guess. The more seriously they take the word friend, the more I'm inclined to agree that men and women can't be friends. How about that? Okay, fair. That feels like a win for me. Thank you. (laughs) Well, okay. On the other hand, though, this is assuming that all men and women want to get married and are called to get married or be in a relationship at some point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that in a Catholic context in which other vocations are very 
possible and actual for a lot of people, that complicates things and that may be beside the point. But I think spiritual friendship, especially when you are in a vocation where you're not going to have a human spouse, spiritual friendship between men and women might be more possible. Yeah, I mean, I think we there's certainly saints you read about, or I don't know if this is a great example, but like, obviously, St. Clair and St. Francis had a very good friendship. But it's also, it's interesting because I think that those friendships are focused outward. Hmm. The character of them is focused on Christ yeah. in a very particular way that I think most friendships are much more... I don't even want to say they're inward focused or they're insular. Not all friendships are, but I think that there's something different. Even what, you know, the category of friends I was talking about that kind of like my second category, when you're talking about ideas, it can get a little fuzzy because people feel very personally attached to ideas. Mm. And so that can feel very personal, but I think that it allows for some distance in a way that like talking about your personal life is harder. For example, I think talking to somebody about your vocation extensively starts to feel like they're either your spiritual advisor or like maybe you're sort of hoping they're going to talk you out of this yeah. alternate vocation, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I have seen. Right. Um, so it's definitely a thing. I think that these like spiritual friendships, it works when it's actually not fulfilling some alternate need for like actual relationship. It's like, oh, we're we're sort of bonding over our mutual love of Christ, which I think has a different character to it. I also don't want to make it seem as though I think men and women shouldn't be friends. Like I think it's very healthy for men and women to have exposure to the opposite sex. <laughs> You know, I just like wouldn't recommend you, you know, having these 2 a.m. phone calls watching a movie together and like pretending that this isn't more intimate than a, than like an average friendship. Yeah, that's an attachment that you're not willing to acknowledge. Like these people are not willing to acknowledge for much of the movie. Yeah, that would be my personal delineation. But I mean, I think I think to your point, I would applaud this movie for having very healthy friendships, especially for men, since there's so few examples of that nowadays. Mm. Like, these guys actually get together and talk about real things. If that's friendship, I wish more guys had <laughs> good guy friends. And frankly, I wish they had more good girlfriends who could be honest with them. <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. but <laughs> Yeah, and that's that's part of what makes Nora Ephron such a good writer. The conversations that she has are taken from real life, but they're also very honest and transparent in a way that's very well written and very entertaining, but also sets a good example for people to like help articulate themselves around other people mm. and say what's really bugging them, whether that's about like, what does this song mean? Or why do men always act this way around women? Their quote unquote friendship, the reason they're not willing to acknowledge the attachment, maybe we can pivot here a little bit, has to do with existing flawed way they view love and the the flawed mm. way they pursue love in their their dating lives apart from their relationships with one another because that serves as a pretty big topic of conversation for them when they are with each other is how they are relating to you know Harry to his girlfriend or his wife and Sally to her boyfriend or the guy she's dating or whoever. So maybe it would be good to talk about that because you mentioned early on how this movie sort of is the pudding where the proof is for men, women, and the mystery of love and love and responsibility. 
And I think both Harry and Sally demonstrate some of the lessons that we talked about in Men and Women of the Mystery of Love, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. I think it's perhaps this would not be the first thing that comes to mind if I asked you what movie best exemplifies <laughs> Men and Women of the Mystery of Love. In some ways, this is more like showing what a train wreck sentimental love can be. But the parts that stood out to me most, well, first of all, when Meg Ryan's character is with is it Joe? Joe. And they've only been dating a few weeks. And he's like, I love you. And she says, you do? <laughs> this is really like, you've only been dating a few weeks. Perhaps this is like an inappropriate time for a declaration of love, which would indicate that this is a very sentimental love, i.e. the kind of thing that JPG talks about as being like, when you're swept away in the sentiments, you're not really evaluating the relationship properly. Right. And I mean, this comes out later on in the movie when... She says she finally realizes that she wants a family and he doesn't. But they've been living together for, what, six years at this point? Five years, yeah. It's something insane. And I mean, I just think that it like is, is this perfect little encapsulation of this is why sentimental love is so dangerous because it doesn't allow you – you get like so swept up in it. It doesn't allow them to, to really evaluate what do you want in life? And like, is this the person that I want to pursue those things with? Right. In Sally's defense, she did say that at one time they both thought they wanted the same thing and she sort of changes her mind. But, you know, in a committed relationship where you have chosen love, you would choose to work on it. Instead, in this case, she says, oh my gosh, I realize I want a family. And he's like, I still don't. Peace. It's like, it's over. It's done. <laughs> So when he said he loved her a month in and certainly did not want a family with her then, much less five years later, she was not what he loved. Yeah. He liked being with her, but he didn't love her. In like manner, she wanted to fall in love with somebody that she could actually start a family with, which is not him. And she was just unwilling to recognize that in herself and in him. So love and responsibility would have got a long yeah, way there. Definitely. In answer to the question at the beginning, we did not fit all of this into one episode. So for the first time, we are going to have an overflow episode for one of our movie talks. So stay tuned for episode 72 in a couple weeks when we continue on with When Harry Met Sally and maybe finish talking about it. We'll see. Please share this podcast with your friends. Leave us a review on iTunes and be sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now and God love you.